You are tuned to KVMR-FM Nevada City KCPC Camino. It's 6 p.m. Thursday, December 15th. I'm Joyce Miller, and this is the KVMR Evening News. Grant funding for Sierra Harvest promises to move Nevada County school lunch offerings closer to wholesome home cooking. KVMR's Felton Pruitt digs into the subject with Executive Director Amy Retzler. In Bakersfield, the Central Valley has opened its first Holocaust memorial, but the California report finds that rising incidents of anti-Semitism have put Jewish institutions on alert, forcing them to devote precious resources to safety. We end with an essay by Molly Fisk. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez reporting today from Lake Tahoe. The state task force studying reparations for black residents with enslaved ancestors is meeting this week in Oakland. One item on the agenda, discussing how reparations might help overcome negative stereotypes about black families. KQED's Annalise Finney has more. A 2013 study by the National Department of Health and Human Services found that African-American fathers were more likely to read to and dress their kids than fathers of other races. But nonetheless, racist stereotypes often paint those same dads as more likely to be absent or unengaged. Dr. Cheryl Grills is a psychology expert and a member of the State Reparations Task Force. At Wednesday's meeting, she said racist narratives impact how government services are provided to black families. So how do we begin to flip that script? Because if we don't, there will always be this kind of underlying ideology that will disrupt and corrupt how black families are seen and treated. That's one question the state task force hopes to address in its final recommendations for reparations due to the state legislature in June. For the California Report, I'm Annalise Finney in Oakland. Study after study shows an alarming increase in hate crimes and racist incidents in California, targeting a variety of groups, including Jews. Worries about rising anti-Semitism have gotten more attention recently after the bigoted comments of artist Kanye West, who now goes by the name Ye. How is California's Jewish community reacting? I talked about that with Heidi Gantwork, the president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of San Diego. Gantwork didn't mince words about what what she's seeing and hearing in her community. The Jewish community is anxious. We are on alert and it is different than I have seen it in my lifetime. It is pervasive. And when you combine anti-Semitism with extremist violence, you've got a really frightening situation. We're concerned. We're anxious. People are worried about where they put their kids in preschool. Is it safe? Can they send their kids to particular colleges? You know, can they walk into their synagogue on the high holidays or are they a target? These are things people are talking about regularly in the Jewish community. So when it comes to the safety and security of Jewish institutions in your part of California, like synagogues, Jewish schools and community centers, what's happening now? So in San Diego, we are finding that every Jewish institution has to increase their budget for security. It takes away from other things they're doing. And they have to apply for nonprofit security grants. They have to harden their targets by putting bulletproof film in, cameras, armed guards. So what Federation in particular is doing is we are investing more than a million dollars over the next few years 
to help with all of this by providing a community security director. This is a person who is going to help every Jewish institution with trainings, with assessments, with security planning, and with uh, incident reporting and threat assessments. Right. We need to gather information. Uh, we also have to have an emergency plan when things do happen so we know what's happening throughout the county. We also had a community security institute with nine synagogues who improved their security plans and were funding their target hardening. So there's a huge investment necessary. It's sad. I'd much rather be spending that money on other things to strengthen and, and, and you know, grow Jewish life and community. But it is necessary if we want people to participate. And I imagine if we had spoken three, four, or five years ago, yes, security at sites of Jewish life would still be an issue, but nothing like it is now. It's nothing like it is now. It's it, the the visual change, right? Walking into synagogues, you're going to see armed guards. You're going to see fencing. Uh, this is a thing that every parent checks when they send their kids to a Jewish space. It is it is very perimeter fencing and cameras, etc. Um, and the challenge we have is balancing that with the Jewish value of welcoming, welcoming the stranger. And we need to have sp safe spaces, but they also need to be welcoming. And this is something that every Jewish organization is grappling with right now. But it is a very significant change. It's a change financially. It's a change in how these organizations structure. It's a change in what leaders need to think about all the time. It's, it's very different than it was five years ago. All right. We've been talking to Heidi Gantwork, president and CEO of the Jewish Federation of San Diego. Thank you so much for joining us on the California Report. Thank you so much for having me. And on a related topic, Bakersfield is now home to the Central Valley's first Holocaust memorial. The Tranquil Garden is a monument against hate and rising anti-Semitism, as we just discussed. KVPR's Joshua Yeager reports. The memorial is the first of its kind in Central California. At the site, six large glass cases hold a million buttons. They represent lives cut tragically short, murdered during the Holocaust. Each of the six million innocent victims were individuals just like you and me. That's synagogue co-director Esther Schlanger speaking to a crowd of hundreds. Why remember? We remember because the only way to ensure never again is to never forget. The buttons were handcrafted and painstakingly sorted over the past 10 years with help from volunteers, including Pam Shalek. It represents a history that we don't want repeated. Bakersfield Mayor Karen Goh praised the monument, saying it will help to ease division in the community. Let us continue to resolve to work together as a community, united, respecting each other, valuing every life. The Central Valley Holocaust Memorial is open to the public at the Chabad Jewish Community Center on Ming Avenue. For The California Report, I'm Joshua Yeager in Bakersfield. Support for the California Report comes from Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com slash CA. Guideline, the California way to 401k. Stanford Healthcare, where their greatest reward is a healthy patient. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, 
Rafu's philanthropy includes Schmidt Futures, which bets early on exceptional people making the world better, on the web at SchmidtFutures.com. And that is the California Report for Thursday, December 15th. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Lake Tahoe. Thanks so much for listening, and have a great day. In regional news, the Nevada Joint Union High School District Board seated three newly elected trustees at its meeting Wednesday evening and said goodbye to four trustees, leaving one abrupt vacancy. According to a story published on Ubinet.com, new trustees Ken Johnson, Olivia Pritchett, and Wendy Willoughby were sworn in by Superintendent Dan Frazella. They will replace outgoing trustees James Hinman, who was absent, Stephanie Leishman, and Pat Seeley. As the new trustees took their seats, Frazella announced that trustee Jim Drew had left the meeting and would not participate in the proceedings. Later in the meeting, Frazella announced that Drew had resigned his seat on the board, effective immediately. The new board elected Duane Gansky as president, Wendy Willoughby as vice president, and Olivia Pritchett as clerk of the board. Student Representative Amelia Glaze was elected to the board for a term ending next June. Drew's term was set to expire in November 2024. The board will have to determine if the Area 3 trustees seat will be filled by appointment or by special election. Drew was elected to the board in 2016 and re-elected in 2020. There was also a changing of the guard at the Grass Valley City Council on Tuesday night when Ben Aguilar handed over the mayor's gavel to Jan Arbuckle. As reported by the Union newspaper of Grass Valley, Aguilar was first appointed to the council in March 2015. He has served as mayor for the past two years and announced in August he would not run for re-election to the council. New council member Haven Caravelli and Hillary Hodge, who was re-elected in November, both took the oath of office for four-year terms. The council members voted to make Hodge the new vice mayor, according to the union. Turning to the regional forecast from the National Weather Service and air quality from purpleair.com, Dry days and cold nights are expected to continue through Sunday with a slight chance of showers at the beginning of next week. The National Weather Service in Sacramento announced this afternoon on its Twitter account that the Sierra snowpack is, quote, off to a great start with a statewide average of 201%. This evening, Nevada City and Grass Valley will have clear skies with a low around 31 This afternoon's air quality measurements were in the 20s and 30s, which is considered satisfactory. Friday will be sunny and clear, with a high near 53 and a low around 30. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe tonight, the forecast is for mostly clear skies with a low around 9. Air quality this afternoon was averaging around 30, which is considered satisfactory. Friday will be sunny, with a high in the mid-30s. Friday night will be mostly clear, with a low around 11. Tonight in Sacramento and Woodland, partly cloudy with patchy fog and frost and a low around 32. The air quality measurements this afternoon were in the 50s and 60s in Sacramento, considered acceptable with some risk for sensitive individuals. Friday, expect morning fog and frost with gradual clearing to partly sunny and a high near 53. 
Friday night, more fog and frost, but otherwise mostly clear, with a low around 31. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Meals cooked from scratch using raw, unprocessed ingredients are healthy and wholesome, but rare in our fast-paced society, especially when cooking for a crowd. But Nevada County Schools are ready to move a bit closer to that model now that Sierra Harvest has been awarded a farm-to-school grant of almost half a million dollars. KVMR's Felton Pruitt has the details. But here's a trigger warning. This report might make you really ready for dinner. We're talking with Amy Retzler. She's the executive director of Sierra Harvest, and they've just gotten a California Farm to School Incubator Grant in support of the Foothills Fresh Program. That's a mouthful. Why don't we uh, dig into that, Amy? (laughs) Thank you so much, Felton, for having me on today. Absolutely. We are so excited to be a grantee and awardee of the California uh, Farm to School Program. This incubator award is actually the second award that, that we have received in support of helping all of the schools in Western Nevada County make moves towards a scratch cooking model for their students. Let people know what scratch cooking means. Scratch cooking is what you think of when you're, you're at home and your grandma or your mom or your aunt or your dad or your stepdad are making food for you. And it's all made from scratch using raw ingredients. So, you know, things that bread is made from scratch and think about a barbecue pork sandwich, right? Mm. Nothing's frozen. Um, you're cooking it down. You're making the barbecue sauce. You're making pizzas. And, and some of that cooking exists in the school systems today. It's just not very widespread. Um, so using this funding to get access for children, all children in Western Nevada County, to those types of meals is really the intent. So how much was the grant for? $488,000. That sounds like you can do a lot with that. <laughs> we sure can. We sure can. It's definitely going to support the startup costs. When you transition to a scratch-cooked model and you're dealing with you know dozens of school sites, it is a multi-million dollar project. So this gives us this, the seed funding to be able to start taking some baby steps like putting salad bars in school. And, and you're seeing that happen. Grass Valley School District has taken a lead in getting salad bars back into Lyman, Gilmore, and Bell Hill schools. And we got a chance to see these kindergartners go through that salad bar line. And boy, they really knew what they were doing. It's come a long way since when I was in school and ketchup was a vegetable. <laughs> It still is a vegetable, believe it or not. <laughs> no, really? <laughs> it is. It's true. Oh, okay. Well, fortunately, though, it's you're true. giving them real vegetables as well to go with it. Yeah. Salad bars are just such a great vehicle for getting kids to, you know, just easy access to fresh local seasonal foods and really teaching them what's in season. And then when they choose the vegetables and the fruits that they want on their plate, you see food waste really go down and the kids go back to the classroom ready to learn. How will this be sustained financially? So it is a self-operating, self-sustaining model when you get past the initial capital investment. And many people think, well, if you're serving better food, isn't that more expensive? But the reality is if you're buying raw whole products, those are less expensive than frozen processed products. And then you can exchange that high food cost and move that cost over into labor. So it's actually going to facilitate more jobs when you do scratch cooking. 
And so you can improve the food quality and reduce your food costs, uh, raise your labor costs, and actually run a profitable model. So now that you've got the grant, how long before you get to put it into process and, and actually have it functioning? Yeah, so we're just in the planning stages right now, but um, in, uh, in January, we're going to be able to sign the grant agreement. And as soon as those documents are signed, then we can start the grant activities. And then the money starts flowing April 1st, and it runs for a two-year period. The agency hopes to be able to make enough strides in those two years um, to be able to put the pieces of the puzzle together to start moving towards scratch cooked meals for all students. And like I said, you know, some students do get access to scratch cooked meals in this county. But the reason for the project is the majority of students don't have access to those meals right now. Um, so hopefully this funding will, will get a lot more students the access that they need and that they deserve. How can folks find out more about this? Well, you can log on to sierraharvest.org. Also, we are always looking for volunteers. You know, when we roll out those salad bars in schools and, and help with that process, the food service people, when they roll those out, you know, it's fun to have a cheerleader, somebody in like a, a, co- a veggie costume at the salad bar cheering those <laughs> students on. So if anybody wants to, you know, get a beat costume and <laughs> help us out that way, that would be a really fun way to participate. We've been talking with Amy Retzler, Executive Director of Sierra Harvest. Thanks for all your hard work. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Felton. Appreciate having the time today. And now, Molly Fisk. Molly Fisk, Observations from a Working Poet. My current writing notebook is a saddle-bound dark blue, measuring 179 by 252 millimeters, made in Japan. On the front, it says notebook in block letters, and then in script, most advanced quality gives best writing features. On the back, it says since 1987. Can you tell I don't know what to write about this morning? In 1987, I lived in Chicago at 3800 North, as they like to say there, placing everyone alongside Lake Michigan closer to or farther from the so-called loop. I thought calling the downtown of a major city the Loop was goofy, especially when I was told it was because the above-ground subway system looped around it, the L-train. There's all kinds of code when you live somewhere that outsiders don't know. The Lower East Side means something to New Yorkers, or many things, of which I'm unaware. There's significance to San Francisco's Tenderloin, Boston's South End, In my tiny town, if you mention that someone grew up on the ridge, it means across the South Yuba River on the San Juan Ridge, and then probably that they or their parents were hippie pot growers, or, hello, Gary Snyder, poets, or both. I lived here for decades before I met someone from an earlier generation who was raised on a cattle ranch on the ridge and voted Republican all her life. In college-filled places, the polarity is town and gown. Here we call it Cowboy Cappuccino. In Chicago, I lived four blocks from Wrigley Field, and this was before they had lights, so no night games. People near the park would sell tickets to folding chairs on their rooftops. It was hilarious. I went to some games, but mostly I found out the day's results, walking home from the bus stop after work, through crowds of cheerful or glum faces. On weekends, I'd watch the Cubs on TV and rush to turn off the sound and open a window if some great play was made so I could hear the cheers in person. 
This was around the time ATM machines were invented, and the first one I used was on Wrigley Field's outside wall. Back then, a voice spoke to you encouragingly from inside the machine, for some reason in a British accent. I try to go inside banks nowadays to promote human contact. But if I do end up using an ATM, I repeat her words in my head. Please wait while your transaction is processing. I like that please, hallmark of a friendlier century. I'm always wanting to add politeness to the statements of inanimate objects. Gas pumps, for instance. Would it kill them to program yes please and no thank you when they offer to print you a receipt instead of just the curt yes or no? Whatever happened to civility, anyhow? That small gesture would buoy the spirits of people everywhere, even if we aren't buying gas much longer, even if we end up, as I like to imagine, with tiny little windmills providing power from the roofs of our cars. Award-winning poet Molly Fisk writes, coaches, and teaches writing in California's Sierra Nevada foothills. You can reach her at mollyfisk.com. This program is produced at the studios of KVMR-FM, Nevada City, California. Funding is provided by Harmony Books of Downtown Nevada City and KVMR with support from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. That's our newscast for Thursday, December 15th. KVMR Community Radio gets support from Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties and San Francisco to Lake Tahoe, milkmancompany.com. And MEC Builds, Nevada County roofing contractor with over 20 years of experience, providing complete roofing services, gutter products, sun tunnels, and skylights. The showroom is at 316 Colfax Avenue in Grass Valley, mecbuilds.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza and airs every weeknight at 6. If you missed any of our newscasts or interviews, you can listen at kvmr.org or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget, you can always connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. This is Joyce Miller signing off. Stay warm and join us Friday evening for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.